1997, turtle hunters found a body bound with duct tape and weighted with cinder blocks in a remote West Michigan lake. It was a young mother and one of five possible victims of convicted killer Marvin Gabrion. He now sits on death row for a crime committed in a state that outlawed the death penalty nearly 200 years ago. This is Michigan Crime Stories. Michigan Crime Stories is a podcast that explores murder, mysteries, and mayhem in the Mitten State. Criminal behavior has always enthralled us. It's when societies determine what is and isn't allowed. We assume heinous crimes are committed by monsters, individuals we dehumanize in an effort to make sense of their deeds. Their victims sometimes seem distant, just faded names in a passing headline. But the terrifying truth is that crimes are committed by ordinary people, just like you and me. And many of those crimes happen right in our own backyard. My name is Gus Burns. And I'm Darcy Moran. We're reporters for MLive.com and your host for Michigan Crime Stories. This episode is titled, The Execution. The blonde hair, blue-eyed 19-year-old had turned a corner. That's what family said in a July 1997 article in the Grand Rapids Press. Rachel Timmerman of Cedar Springs had recently come back from a stint in jail for selling marijuana to an undercover cop, but she was quote-unquote the happiest I'd ever seen her, her dad said. She'd found her faith in God and was working at a McDonald's while raising her round-faced, blue-eyed, one-year-old daughter, Shannon. The only thing was she was scared. Scared of 43-year-old Marvin Gabrion. He'd offered her a ride to a store the previous summer, then kicked his friend out of the car in order to rape her, authorities would later say. She said he'd left a bite mark on her nose and threatened to kill her if she told. He also threatened to kill her daughter, Shannon, and make her watch. She was supposed to testify against Gabrion for the rape in June 1997, but two days before, on June 3rd, Timmerman went on a date, as John Agar, a Grand Rapids press reporter, recalls. As it turns out, Marvin Gabriel had one of his younger friends ask her, ask Rachel to go out to dinner with him. When she did that, at some point, Gabriel got a hold of her, and uh, she was, wasn't seen again, nor, nor was her um, young daughter, Shannon. She, she did send some letter to her dad saying that she'd met some some great guy and that she was going to be gone for a little while. It didn't make a lot of sense to the family, but um, they're quite concerned. A letter in Timmerman's handwriting also arrived at the prosecutor's office. It said she couldn't bear the thought of locking up an innocent man. The charges were dropped. Then the young mother turned up dead. At some point, she was bound and gagged, tied tied or chained to wood block or to a chained to cement blocks, and taken out in an old rowboat out into uh, Oxford Lake, and she was thrown into the water. And and the autopsy shows that she was still alive when she was put in the water. It's a horrible thing what happened to Rachel Timmerman. Her uh, last hours, days. 
Witnesses would later recall seeing Gabrian driving erratically nearby the remote lake and being out there with a woman and another man. Gabrian was arrested three months later in New York. In 2002, after serving five years for fraud, he was tried in federal court, charged with Timmerman's death, but accused in the death of four others, including her daughter, Shannon. He's also accused of killing three men who went missing around the same time. There was John Weeks, the man officials believe Gabrian used to lure Timmerman on the pretenses of a date before her death. Then there was Wayne Davis, a witness in the rape, whose body was found after the trial. And finally, Robert Allen, a mentally disabled man whose social security checks Gabrian collected. Gabrian, for his part, testified to a conspiracy between state police, Timmerman's father, and prosecutors, somehow involving a helicopter. He also said he worked for the CIA and blamed his associates for her death. He said, quote-unquote, I didn't kill Rachel Timmerman. There were witnesses to him scratching off the registration on his boat and drawing a map of the lake with the words, body found, one of three, written on it. It was a case heavy with evidence, said the U.S. attorney who prosecuted the case, Tim Verhey. Uh, This was almost a 100% circumstantial case. Uh, And circumstantial means often it's portrayed as that flimsy bad evidence, but actually it was about as airtight a circumstantial case as you'll ever see. Just to give you an example, uh, Rachel Timmerman was chained to some cement blocks with master locks that have a key to them. Marvin Gabrion's house uh, was searched and he had the key that fit those locks, but he didn't have any locks in his home. So that's an example of circumstantial evidence that he did it, right? He didn't say he did it, he never confessed to it. But you had uh, examples like that over and over again that showed this is the man that killed killed the victim and there's just no uh, way to get around that. In the end, Verhey got his guilty verdict and the government sought the death penalty. Headlines at the time berated the choice, saying prosecutors should heed the will of the state. Michigan, you see, was the first state to outlaw the death penalty. It was the first uh, death penalty verdict that we ever had in Michigan after the Supreme Court said you could have death penalty again in 1976. There was, I think, only one other uh, death sentence uh, handed out in Michigan, and that was back in the 1930s for some bank robbery in Midland. So this was the first time uh, a jury in Michigan had been asked to impose the death penalty, and then they, they did it. The other issue that makes it a little bit of a, a landmark case is uh, we'd never had a case where somebody had been killed on national forest property as opposed to national park property or like a military base or something like that. And so legally there was an issue about uh, do the feds even have jurisdiction to bring a federal charge based on something that happens in a national forest? Because Michigan and the feds run the national forest together. In fact, Gabriel has repeatedly challenged the federal jurisdiction. During the trial, his attorneys argued that Timmerman could have died of asphyxiation elsewhere, not drowning in the lake. On appeal, he's fought whether the portion of the lake where she was found is federal property, and whether laws around the 1930s, when the property was bought, apply. 
Defense attorneys also argued that the jury should have been told that Michigan is a non-death penalty state. None of the jurisdictional arguments have worked. But according to reporter John Agar, most recently attorneys have argued that Gabrion is mentally unstable. That could be an issue down the line. The Supreme Court has ruled that mentally incompetent prisoners can't be executed. Some people said he was really smart growing up and, and had a big heart for, you know, for the uh, underdog, I guess, or, or others who were um, struggling in life. And, and he's apparently suffered a, a bunch of head injuries through crashes and, and different things. And eventually he's just started having mental health issues. He, he's been described as hostile and delusional. He punched his own attorney during the, the sentencing of the death penalty. He's used up all of his criminal appeals. But now there's this one last, or they, they consider it one last uh, ditch effort. It's a, a civil appeal process where he claims that his conviction sentence is unconstitutional. Many death sentences do get thrown out during the appeals process. And these days, experts say the death penalty isn't as popular due to costs, struggles getting lethal drugs, and exonerations. For Hay, the prosecuting attorney, said Gabriel is feigning his insanity, and he had no issue asking the jury to sentence him to death. For Hay said among the criminals and murderers he's faced, Gabriel sticks out as scary. The death penalty, in my personal opinion, uh, doesn't make much sense. It doesn't make much sense economically. Uh, it takes too long to, to reach the punishment stage. And all the things that you've mentioned uh, are true. It's expensive. Uh, the one... Uh, reason I think that uh, it continues to be supported in this country is that it's the Old Testament uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If, if you kill somebody, a lot of people think the only way to achieve justice is to lose your life yourself. You forfeited your life. If you ask people to vote in a democracy about uh, whether that's an appropriate punishment, um, I for one can't say that that's crazy for them to say That seems like justice to me. This is Michigan Crime Stories co-host Gus Burns, and I'm sitting here with Darcy Moran, who reported on this. How are you doing? Good. Thanks, Gus. Listening to your reporting, I was wondering more about the location. There's arguments over jurisdiction. Can you talk about the location? It's about an hour away from Grand Rapids, an hour north of that, a little bit more, and about an hour east of Lake Michigan. It's in the uh, Manistee National Forest. It's kind of described as being this tiny, really murky um, lake there. It's actually called a swamp area where Rachel Timmerman was found. And what kind of got interesting in this case is, as we mentioned in the narration, that uh, Gabriel really tried to fight how much of that property was private, how much of it belonged to the state versus the federal government, when the federal government, you know, got access to that property. And what was kind of interesting is within the appeals process, I was I was reading up on this and there's actually, it got down to them arguing, it seemed at a point just exactly where Rachel's body was found within the water, like where the line was in the water for the federal property. And at at a certain point, they ended up saying there was too much vegetation for her to really have floated away. So there was really a big, interesting look at this aspect of exactly where the lines are drawn. Speaking of where her 
her body was found, there are four other possible victims in this case, including her daughter. Do you know if any other bodies were found in that lake or what happened with those other possible victims? Yeah. So um, as we mentioned, only one other body was found. That was actually Wayne Davis and his body was found similarly weighted, if I recall correctly. And it was within the same national forest, but it wasn't the same body of water. Shannon has never been found. The two other men have never been found. They did drain and dredge the lake um, looking for them, but they've never been located. It makes it difficult to prosecute without a body, but do you know if they ever considered any further prosecution in this case? So I don't get the indication that they did. When I talked to Verhe, he noted that he felt that the jurors agreed with their assessment that these other individuals had been killed by Gabriel and that this one case kind of covered all the grounds. And I, I mean, it's a death penalty case. What, what else could they sentence him with, really? So at this point, it's unlikely that they would ever pursue any other prosecutions. I didn't get the indication that they would uh, pursue another case, yeah. And this case was about the federal death penalty, but can you talk about some things you learned about our state's death penalty? Yeah, so I think you and I were talking about um, this was the, or Michigan was the first state to uh, abolish the death penalty. I believe what I read was that actually you'd still get the death penalty for treason. But was an interesting note is um, the Death Penalty Information Center out of D.C. Um, they noted that Michigan was actually the first uh, territory in the English-speaking world to abolish the death penalty. So that was kind of a, an interesting aspect there. So our state is pretty progressive historically had this issue. Yeah, and I mean, that's what made it so kind of crazy to Michiganders when the prosecutors here were asking for the death penalty is they were saying, you know, we as a state, we, we originated this idea of not having it, and now you're bringing it back. This was tried, and he was sentenced to death, to death a long time ago. Where are things now? Where is he? Where is the death penalty scheduling date? Stuff like that. Does he have a death date? So he doesn't have a death date at this point, um, to my knowledge. He is at the Terre Haute facility in Indiana being held there. That's where I believe most, if not all, death row prisoners are held uh, through the federal system. And he's still in the appeal process. So we're going to see what happens with that. Uh, it's really not clear if and when he will be executed. And actually, as I was doing the research on this, I, I mentioned the Death Penalty Information Center. I actually spoke with their executive director, Robert Dunham, and he and I kind of talked about how likely it is for someone to get executed and, and really how unlikely it is. I'd actually like to play a clip from him, if you don't mind. I think it kind of explains it well. There have been a number of reasons why the federal death penalty um, has not resulted in executions. Uh, a lot of the cases are still in the appellate process. Uh, there is a uh, there's a federal court order uh, preventing uh, states and the federal government uh, from importing execution drugs uh, from abroad, uh, and the drug manufacturers in the United States uh, uniformly will not sell their medicines to governments for use in executions. So all of that uh, has made it more difficult for states and the federal government to carry out executions uh, by lethal injection. But I think the, the big fact is that there's been such a significant drop in public support for the death penalty that prosecutors at the state level and until the current administration at the federal level uh, had been pursuing the death penalty 
guess I'm not surprised that the use of the death penalty is less popular. It seems to be going that way, but the fact that he says that it's really swayed tremendously is a little more surprising to me than I, I still feel like there's a, a good number of Americans out there who are saying eye for an eye. You know, while you hear that uh, from a lot of people that, you know, they're anti-death penalty, the victims in these matters, certainly a decent amount of them still feel like justice is served when the death penalty is imposed. Speaking of victims and their perspective on the death penalty, do we know much about Rachel's family and relatives and how they feel about this delayed The Timmerman family specifically are still very at a loss, especially for Shannon, the the one-year-old that uh, was lost here. And I know they continue to really mourn that, uh, you know, beyond learning that they supported the death penalty and that, that I gleaned from the archives. I thought it was interesting to hear that at the end of it, that her family had gone back to Oxford Lake. Um, the dad did to see where this had all begun. And it was an interesting note that he said it, it seemed peaceful and he, he doesn't associate it with uh, his daughter's final moments. Okay. Well, that wraps up my questions for you. I appreciate the reporting on this. I'm Gus Burns. And this is Darcy Moran. This is Michigan Crime Stories. Tim Verhey, Robert Dunham, and John Agar for speaking to us. As a side note, a few of the responses in this episode were edited for length and clarity. Lastly, thank you for listening. If there's a crime story you want to know more about, feel free to email me at dmoran at mlive.com. That's D-M-O-R-A-N at mlive.com. I'm Darcy Moran, and this is Michigan Crime Stories.